was mentioning to you then that our subject is revival, and especially this evening the subject of the first revival recorded in Scripture. When we speak of revival, we're using a word that has re on the beginning. You can identify even children that this refers to something happening again. If we recycle something, we're sending it back through the cycle of use. And so revival refers to something that's once been alive, living again another time. And so the true religion lived and flourished in Abel, this one that we read about, who by faith offered a more excellent sacrifice to God than Cain, and who, being dead, yet speaketh. He received testimony from God by God approving his person and his sacrifice. He came and worshipped God. He wasn't like the men of Beth Shemesh who came to look upon the ark without its covering. He did not come uh, in his own righteousness, for then he would have been smitten down uh, by the law of God. But he came under that covering and propitiation of Jesus Christ, rested upon by faith, and God accepted his person and his offering. And he maintained his testimony unto the right worship of God, even to the point of dying, his blood going into the ground. And so the true religion was alive and vigorous in Abel. But now Abel is dead. But Abel being dead, yet speaketh. And he speaks to you this evening. Abel speaks to you. And the true religion can be revived in you. There is no reason why the true religion needs to be in a dead and languishing state upon the face of the earth. Sometimes it is so in the providence of God, but it can be revived in you and in us. Will you seek that the true religion be lively and vigorous in you, that it would live again in you as it lived in Abel? And so to spur us towards that this evening, let us consider the first revival. First, uh, well, three things about the first revival. The first is the need for the first revival. The first revival was needed because of disappointed hopes. We begin the chapter of Genesis 4 with hope. Eve has received the promise. She knows that there will be a seed that will come forth through her that will bruise the head of the serpent that had deceived her. It's possible that she believed that Cain, her firstborn, was that very seed. She speaks in verse 1, I have gotten a man from the Lord. She sees God's hand in the conception and the birth of her son. And then she has another son, Abel. But yet these hopes are disappointed. She's disappointed in both of her sons because Cain proves to be wicked and Abel, as his name is, breath or vapor or fleeting. His life proves fleeting. The son who was just and a right worshiper of God 
is swept away. So there are disappointed hopes. And you can compare this to the disappointed hopes of the disciples that walked with Jesus on the way to Emmaus. And they're saying they thought that Jesus of Nazareth was the one who should have redeemed Israel. And think about the position of Adam and Eve with neither son being able to be the one who is the fulfillment of the promise. Their hopes are in tatters. Their hopes are burned up. Think of the position of the disciples who had walked with Jesus those years of his public ministry. And then they see him betrayed and they see him tried and they see him crucified and they see him buried. Their hopes were lying in the grave and they couldn't see the resurrection coming. Sometimes the church today is, well, the church today is in a a position of disappointed hopes. There's one uh, man or another, or there's one movement or another. There seems to be a budding hope of revival. There seems to be a spark of something happening. But again and again, our hopes are disappointed, or we have prayers or expectations of the Lord doing a great work. And then these things don't come to pass. So there's a position that we're in of disappointed hopes. The need for the first revival was also because of satanic activity. And so Cain, he murdered his brother Abel. And we read in our New Testament about the same Cain, that he was of that wicked one and slew his brother. That Satan saw the true religion alive and vigorous in Abel, And Satan stirred up his servant and child, Cain, to murder Abel. And it's still true today that Satan hates it whenever he sees the true religion flourishing and he stirs up opposition. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. Let us not forget that Satan hates what we are seeking to do and seeking the Lord and worshiping him. Besides satanic activity, there was the fact of man's degeneracy, that evil men were going from bad to worse. And it's even so that today we need revival in the church of God because of the degeneracy of men. So what was the condition of man in the days when God sent this first revival. Well, man was in a condition of being profane because Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Cain turned his back upon the things of worshiping God and being near to God. And we see the same thing today. People are profane. And I don't mean that they use crude language, though they do, But what I mean, profane, that word means common. It means irreligious. We see the same thing today as in the days of Cain, that people just don't care about worshiping God. They worship mammon. Instead, we live in days of godlessness. The sense and consciousness of God himself is gone, generally, from men. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Not only profane, but also also prosperous. Because notice how Cain, he goes and he he builds a city. He's accomplishing things. He's doing works. And then 
amongst his descendants. We read about different ones who prospered in different trades, like Jabal in his keeping of cattle, and Jubal in his musical endeavors, and Tubal-Cain in his metalworking. And it's the same thing today. People are godless, but they're also prospering. They're building cities. They're doing things. They're pursuing trades. They are spending and absorbing their attention upon these things, and they're far from God. Not only profane, not only prosperous, but also promiscuous. Because here there's Lamech, this descendant of Cain, who takes to himself two wives. The first instance of polygamy in the Bible, which is obviously contrary to God's design for a holy marriage between one man and one woman. It is a degree of uncleanness and breach of the seventh commandment, what Lamech did. We see the same thing today. People are promiscuous and unclean in bold and brazen ways, and we need God to work. A holy God to come down upon upon men who are so unconscious and hardened towards God that they give themselves to uncleanness. Not only profane, prosperous, and promiscuous, but men are also proud. And you see that in Lamech because he's boasting to his wives about what a fighter he has been. He's He's killed people, he's boasting, and he's gotten wounds in the process. It doesn't seem that he would be conscious of a wound upon his conscience. He should be wounded in his conscience for committing murder, but perhaps he's more conscious of the wounds that he's gotten on his body in the process of killing people. But he's, as it were, showing his scars and wounds and boasting about what a fighter he's been. And then he actually refers to what God had done in promising to avenge Cain sevenfold. Now notice that God was patient towards Cain. Instead of God sending Cain immediately to hell, instead God extended the life that Cain was living, the godless life distant from the Lord that Cain was living. God actually promised to keep, to protect him and to extend his earthly life. And now what should, what should men draw from that when God is merciful and kind and when he doesn't bring down judgments immediately? What should people be doing today as God day after day is protecting their lives and not sweeping them away in a great judgment like the flood or not bringing the last day of judgment? People should be turning to the Lord, the, the goodness of God, should lead man to repentance. But instead of being softened by this, notice that Lamech actually seizes upon this and twists it the opposite way around. Oh, God said something about vengeance, therefore I'm going to take vengeance, and I'm going to take it ten times more than even God said that he would take. There's a brazenness, there's a a handling of the very words of God in with a proud bravado. And we see the same thing today, that men are becoming and have become hardened. At times even quoting things from the word of God as they boast about their sins and not even afraid of the judgment of God. This is why we need 
a reviving work of God because man has come to such a condition. Not only that, but there was a long delay that God sent the first revival and it was needed after a long delay. So when you consult chapter 5 in Genesis, you learn some things about the timing of matters. So Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. So the, the birth of Seth is the first good thing that we read about in chapter 4 after Abel worshiping God. So Abel worships God, that's good, but then he's murdered. And then Cain goes on his way and his line is multiplying and they're prospering in worldly things and they're becoming hardened and deaf. And all, a lot of bad stuff is happening for a long time. For 130 years, Adam grows older and older and not until he's 130 is there a sign, a token for good in the birth of Seth. And then we're told that this pouring out of the Holy Spirit and men beginning to call upon the name of the Lord, that doesn't happen until Enos is born. And the birth of Enos is 105 years into the lifetime of Seth. So Adam is 235 years old by the time that Enos is born. So Adam has seen much grief, much misery, much sorrow, many, the commission of many sins upon the face of the earth by his own offspring before God sends the first revival. And so God is pleased to show us our need, to show us that we need him to come down in power in order for anything good to happen upon the face of the earth. When we have disappointed hopes, when we see satanic activity, when we see man degenerating and becoming worse, when we see long delays and it seems that the Lord is doing nothing, we need to cry to God to revive his work in the midst of the years. And all this time as Adam is waiting, think of his position. Think of how Adam would be thinking about his sin. He would be thinking about how it was his transgression that broke the covenant of works that brought misery and death into the world. It was by his transgression imputed to all his offspring that human nature changed and became corrupt and sinful. He was being given time to mourn for his sin, that his sin was the root of deadness and misery. We know that there was a publican, a tax collector that came to the temple and who prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you've heard it told to you, I don't doubt, that he actually says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Adam would have been right to take that position. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Adam was the sinner. But here's the thing. You, by nature, are in Adam. You are the sinner yourself. You are that chief of sinners. All the miseries and the proliferation of violence and so on and death upon the face of the earth. Chalk it up to the sin that is within. Smite upon your own breast and say we desperately need 
God to do a reviving work, but we do not deserve that God would do a reviving work. We deserve every degree of death and sin that we see upon the face of the earth. And if there's a work of God, it needs to be a work both of his power and of his mercy towards sinners. So this shows us then the need for the first revival. Secondly, we'll consider the workers in the first revival. The workers in the first revival. Who was at work? Who was it that was doing things in this first revival? Well, first of all, God did something. God was the principal, the first and the last worker in this first revival. And Eve recognizes this in the birth of Seth. She says, for God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Now, contrast that. Sometimes there are contrasts in the Bible that are black and white. In other cases, there are contrasts that are a little more subtle. So when you look at verse 1, the words of Eve, when she brings forth her firstborn, she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. So in her sentence, the Lord is in the last position in her sentence. She acknowledges that it was through him and through his help that she conceived and bore a son. But now she bears Seth and now God is first in her sentence. She sees more clearly now that it has to be God who raises up the seed for her. And we have, of course, Adam as the father, his His place is uh, mentioned here, and Adam knew his wife again, and that was an indispensable place, but it was under God. And this is an echo for us of John chapter 1, where we read of children born, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is what we need, children born of God. We need God to create new birth by his almighty power. And we have some semblance or shadow of that in the birth of Seth. So God was the first worker. Eve, under God, also was one of the workers in this first revival. And this this is a point to, to cherish and to bring out and the Lord has given a wonderful place uh, to women in the plan that he has in reviving true religion upon the face of the earth. And Eve had her place in that she brought forth this son who stands in the place where Abel stood, as we we're going to consider shortly, who's a pillar and upholding the true religion in days of declension. And, and Eve brought him Fourth, First Timothy 2, last verse, it says, Nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Those four things. That's what Eve did, and that's what she exemplified. Saved in childbearing. What does that mean? Is it a meritorious thing? For a woman to bear a child where somehow 
then, well, she has purchased heaven if she bears a child, obviously not, but rather saved through childbearing. The word could be rendered through. So this is for a woman. This is the principal pass, passageway on which she walks, the path on which she walks in serving God in which she experiences his sustaining grace and help and she contributes to the work that God is doing in the world to advance the true religion. What were the graces that uh, Eve exercised? Did she exercise faith like Paul talks about? Well, surely she did because she believed the promise. She had heard that from uh, her of her seed that God would raise up one to crush the serpent's head. And so she's recognizing at least a begun fulfillment or something that God is doing towards the fulfillment of that promise. So she exercised faith, which women should exercise today in their childbearing. Did she exercise charity? Surely she did. Did she do a charitable thing towards all men by bringing forth Seth? Surely she did. Because through this, the true religion was revived upon the face of the earth. Did Eve exhibit holiness? She did. She brought forth Seth in a way that was holy. And we see that because she actually, she takes up the Lord's part. She sides with the Lord and with righteousness in the, in the words that she speaks about the birth of Seth. For God said, she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So sadly, Eve had a son who was wicked. However, she did not take up the part of her wicked son against God. She rather took up the part and place of her righteous son and stood in the place where her righteous son had stood and stood with God, even against her wicked son, pointing out his sin. She bore children in a way that was holy. She did it for God and not simply for the connections of flesh and blood. She did so with sobriety. Those four things, again, 1 Timothy 2, are faith, charity, and holiness with sobriety. She brought forth her child with sobriety. And so she brings forth this son and she recognizes that this son is going to stand in the place where the martyr stood. She recognizes that this son is not brought forth for her own, simply for her own gratification or for ends that terminate in this world, but she is bearing a son to take up the martyr's mantle. She is recognizing that a just and righteous son will be one who experiences suffering and persecution. And so this is of encouragement to our women, uh, that even in this calling of childbearing that the Lord has given you, and by exercising these graces, that you can be a worker in the revival that is needed. There's Eve, who's a worker in this first revival, and then there's also Seth. Seth, and his name is, it means appointed or set, and then you can even If you take Seth's name and you remove the last letter, in English you have set. And that's basically the meaning of it. He's put or placed or appointed by God. And so that's what Seth's calling was in his life. It was to stand fast. And we think of the apostles 
call in Ephesians 6 to stand fast and having done all to stand, to stand against the principalities and powers and the forces of wickedness in high places. Seth was called to be as a pillar. Now, Cain, he was a wanderer. He was a vagabond upon the face of the earth, but Seth was to stand. And Eve, in naming him, expressed her hope that God would give him strength to stand. And this, it's a timely word for today. We need revival. And who will be those that work towards the end of revival? Well, first of all, we need God to work. Any true revival is a work of God. We need women who will engage with the four graces that we spoke of in their calling of childbearing and work towards reviving of true religion through that calling. And then the third thing we need is men like Seth who will stand fast and who will not be afraid to stand even in the place where a martyr stood. Abel has been cut down by a murderer. Who will take his place? Will every... Will Seth be afraid? Will he be intimidated like the armies of Israel were intimidated before the threatenings of Goliath? Or will he stand in the strength of God? We need men who will stand. And Jesus Christ is that man who stands. And his birth is promised there in Micah chapter 5. In Micah chapter 5. We have the prophecy of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. But then there's more in Micah 5 and verse 5. And this man shall be the peace. Now that's still speaking of our Lord Jesus. This man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. So Jesus, he is the shepherd, the chief shepherd who stands in the strength of the Lord. But under Jesus Christ, there are seven or eight shepherds or principal men. That is that we need others given by Christ in his strength to stand in the face of the persecutions of the world and to confess the Lord and the true religion, just like Abel the martyr did. We need men to stand like Jonathan and his armor bearer. And we need workers like this for a revival of true religion. There's Seth and then there's Enos. He's the fourth worker in the first revival that I'll mention to you. There's a balance here because Seth, he was to stand in the strength of God. And then he named his son Enos. And what does Enos mean but frail, weak, or sick? Here was a note of humility. Seth, appointed by God to fill up the place of Abel and to confess and practice the true religion, he remembered the lesson of Abel who was fleeting. He recognized that his son was only flesh and blood, only weak, only a breath, only vapor. He recognized 
in sober reality that his son would have to stand with him against a persecuting and degenerating world where the light was in danger of fading out. We need to be willing to stand with strength like Seth, and we need to be willing to be weak like Enos. Are you willing to be made weak for the sake of the reviving of true religion? Are you willing to be persecuted and miscalled? Are you willing to have superior numbers come against you? Are you willing to be weary with labors, spending yourself and stretching yourself to labor for this worthy thing that's worth more than your life, for the true religion to be revived? Are you willing to be at times weak with fasting and sick with desire that God would revive the true religion? We need to be Seth's and we need to be Enos's if we want to see a revival of the true religion. And we need to be Enos's for a very important reason. Because to be like Enos is to be like Jesus Christ. How was it that the true religion flourishes at all in the face of the earth? It's because the Son of God, the Mighty One, that he took our frail flesh to himself. And he was crucified through weakness. He knew weariness and labor. He knew thirst, pain, anguish, and sorrow. He was made weak and died so that the true religion may flourish upon the face of the earth. And all who work with God towards true revival will need to be conformed unto Jesus Christ. These are the workers in true revival. The workers in the first revival are these four. But then thirdly, this evening, we need to consider the newness of of the first revival. Having seen the need for it, the workers in it, we see, thirdly, the newness of the first revival. Verse 26 is telling us that something new happened. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Something began, and the reference is surely to prayer, calling upon the name of the Lord, the construction of the words is interesting. It's an impersonal construction. And so we, we have those in English. We say, it began to rain. You know, who was doing the raining? We're not necessarily saying that. We're saying it began to rain. And there's something like that here. And it's also passive. So it would literally say something like, then it was begun to call upon the name of the Lord. Passive. So that's telling us that God did it. That God began something. In the days when man was degenerating, and Seth was born, and then Enos was born, that God did something new. He started something. It was an eternal God who acted in time. It says that then began men, or then it was begun to call upon the name of the Lord. God acts in time. And you'll remember how Mordecai pressed Esther with a sense of this, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
There are providential circumstances in which God acts. And so God was pleased to give this first revival in times when man was getting worse and worse, but when also the godly were willing to stand up in the place of the martyr who, and to hold up the martyr's testimony and to be weak for the Lord. In these times, God did something. Now, God does not work dependent on the creature, but yet he works in circumstances. And so there's, we can anticipate and look for God to begin something new in times like the ones that we've been considering, and they are times like our own. We ought then to be looking for God to do something. In fact, we should be looking for God to make a new beginning. Any true revival is, after all, a beginning of something. It is God doing something that wasn't there before. It's God reviving something that had died out. That's implied in that word, began. But also then, any true revival is not, it's not the consummation. It's not the end. It's not Jesus Christ returning from heaven and the general resurrection and so on in the eternal state and the day of judgment. It is a beginning, and therefore it is something that needs to be tended and maintained. It is a spark uh, which needs to be fanned into a flame of fire. What, what was it then uh, that was begun at this time? Well, I believe that there were new conversions. The reference is obviously to prayer when it says that it was begun to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, it's God who started this, but yet it had to be man that was doing this, that was praying. And this is a mark of revival. When people who never prayed before begin to pray. When people begin to see the reality of religion, when they begin to see that man is mortal and Abel has died and others are dying, when they begin to see that the path of the world is increasing wickedness and hardness under the judgment of God, when people begin to be wakened up and to see, let not God hand me over unto the hardness that is seen in the world. Let not me become insensitive to the judgments of God. And oh, the memory of Abel is there. Abel found access to God by faith. And here are others who, are tr- who truly fear God. Others like Seth and Enos who are seeking God and who are not afraid to be persecuted for being truly godly. I see that the true religion is a real thing, and I want what these godly ones have. This evening, do you want the true religion? Will you beg God? Children, you see your parents seeking the Lord. Are you seeking God? Do you pray? 
If you've been prayerless until now, or if prayer has been a routine and a form that you rush through, there's a season and a time in which God makes people who never prayed before to begin to pray in earnest. And I pray that it would be so amongst us, that we might have praying children, earnestly seeking God. When God begins something new, this is a mark of it. People who never prayed before, beginning to pray. And then there's another element too, I believe, which is that those who do pray, pray like they never prayed before. Because in the days of Enos, this was not the first time that a godly man ever walked upon the face of the earth. God always has a remnant, mind you. So there never was a day when there was no prayer happening upon the face of the earth. That's an amazing statement. But yet we are being told of a day when prayer was quickened. And it's, well, it's stated in kind of a general way, isn't it? Then it was begun to call upon the name of the Lord. There's something new that's there in the prayerfulness and earnestness of those who already know God. And to describe what revival is, it's difficult to say exactly. But I can say that it means something new comes by the Spirit of God upon the people who pray already. There's a new intentness, a new amount of time that is given unto prayer because prayer takes time. Prayer is a revelation of our priorities and what we are really seeking. New levels of prayerfulness include saying no to some things in order that I can seize upon and redeem additional seasons and times to pray. A new degree of prayerfulness means looking and surveying all that God has promised in his word and beginning to feel the gap between where we are now and what God has promised, beginning to feel that there's, there's more that God has promised to do. And we we're desperate to see him do that and beginning to beseech him and to pray like those who will give him no rest. Oh, that God would give us new levels of prayerfulness that it might be said of us even even now in this season that then we begin to really pray. There's a connection between what God is recording here about history and our own present time. There's at least two connections between history and the present day. One thing is that what God is telling us here is a precedent. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And so what God is showing us, this thing that happened towards the beginning of the dawning of history, when he poured out his spirit in a new way, that that, he shows that to us for our learning and admonition upon whom the end of the ages are come. Whatever was written before time was written for our learning and our admonition. 
We get the benefit of everything that happened in history. And we should ask God to do this again. God is showing us something about the way that he works. There are seasons when God works. So notice the promise is always there. The promise of Genesis 3.15 that God will send a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. The gospel never changes. And so we, we rejoice to know that the, the gospel that we preach to you is an unchanging gospel. However, the, the operations of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel do vary. There are seasons where God works more intensely. There are seasons when God works rapidly, when God brings something new that wasn't there before. And we ought to desire that, that the godly have even said that God does most of his work in the course of history during these seasons of mercy, when he gives something new. We ought therefore to desire what the Lord is laying before us here as a precedent in this book of beginnings. But there's a second uh, connection as well, which who can really calculate this? But there was a time towards the beginning of the world when people were praying when people who had never prayed before began to pray to the Lord, to Jehovah the I Am who changes not, and people who had already prayed began to pray with a new intensity. Who can tell how many answers to their prayers God has given through the course of history? In the next chapter, we read about Enoch. Something happened in the life of Enoch when he was 65 years old. He began to walk with God. And he lived while Seth and Enos were still alive. That was an early answer to the prayers of the godly who sought the Lord. What else did they pray for? Do you think that they prayed that God would send the seed that he had promised to bruise the head of the serpent? They surely prayed for that because that was the one promise that they had. Is the coming of Jesus Christ into the world an answer to the prayers that were offered up to God during this first revival? Yes, that's an answer to their prayers. What did they pray for beyond that? Did they pray that the many peoples of the world would be saved through this seed that they prayed would come? Well, with sanctified judgment, we would have to say, yes, they did. Who knows that answers to their prayers are not being still seen in our world today? And what effect should that have upon us? Should that not stir us up to seek God and to pray for his work upon the face of the earth? Because these ones who were used of the Lord in reviving the true religion and seeking the face of God, they are long since gone to the dust. But their prayers, as it were, are stored up before the Lord. And who can calculate what glory the Lord has gathered to his name through these answers to prayer? Oh, that we may be like them and seek the face of our God with all of our hearts. Amen.